mentioned at times, there are Bibles in the seat back in front of you. It will be helpful to have a Bible in front of you as we go through this text. Otherwise, it may not make a lot of sense. So, Philippians, and we'll be in chapter 3. The question we want to start out with today is, do you have a growing faith? Is your faith growing? Has anyone ever asked you, do you have a growing faith in Jesus Christ? I think we can say that a lot of people in our, in our world think about faith in a weird, unique way. Um, we may think about faith as some obscure thing out there in the cosmos. Like, I have faith that this will all turn out the way that I want it to. And we see that in our TV shows, we see that in our Netflix videos, and we see people questioning what is faith. Faith is trust, essentially, at its essence, and we've talked about this in the past, but trust. So has your trust been growing? And the idea of a growing trust is foreign to many people. We know that trust or faith is a relationship. It is living. It is dynamic. It's a growing thing. And if it can grow, it can mature. And if it can mature, it matures in a specific way in the body of Christ. Let's go ahead and look at our, our text. So Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 15, says this. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have att attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters. Pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. So then, my dearly loved and longed-for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we study your word today, I pray that it would penetrate to our heart, that we would be transformed by the beauty of of knowing Christ Jesus. Father, help us to stand firm in the faith and the knowledge that has been provided to us through your word. Lord, we pray that our minds would be shaped by the gospel message, that we would have one aim, one imitation, and one firm standing. Father, I pray for our community. I pray for the churches that are meeting during this hour that they would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness, and with power. Father, I want to lift up Summit Baptist Church in Huachuca City, that they would be bold in the gospel, that they would reach their community for Jesus Christ, and that you would transform lives through them. Father, I want to pray for our brothers and sisters.
across the world who are facing persecution for Jesus Christ, that they would stand firm in the truth, that you would comfort them and bring them along. God, we know that we are so privileged in our country to be able to worship you with very little restriction. We thank you for your mercy and your grace to us. Lord, may your word go forth with power, with unction, and that you would be honored and glorified in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we see that Paul has been giving us quite a journey so far, hasn't he? We started in chapter 1, and we've continued through till we have gotten to chapter 4 today. What has Paul taught you so far in the book of Philippians to the people of Philippi? I want you to think back. I know we've all slept several days since we talked about it last week and the week before and the week before that and several weeks back. But what has Paul taught you? Is there one thing that stands out to you? For me, as I've been studying this passage, the one thing that stands out is having the attitude of Christ Jesus, which is humility, taking the form of man in order to die on the cross and suffer in the way that he did. And this attitude of humility permeates this letter, doesn't it? He continually brings it up. He shows us examples. Epaphroditus and Timothy are examples of what it looks like to have the mind of Christ. And even Paul himself then explains, look at me as well. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And what we learn from this is Paul likes to repeat himself. Does any of you have an old grandpa that likes to repeat themselves? They tell you the same story over and over again. Sometimes it's yourself. I find myself doing that with my boys, right? And I'll say the same word over, don't, 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 don't. And then they do it anyway, right? And we have repetition, but repetition is important. And in fact, if you look at chapter one, you see the same themes being brought out in this chapter. Chapter one points to our citizenship being in heaven, about standing firm with the gospel, about the destruction of those who do not stand with the gospel. He talks about salvation. All those themes are brought again back here. Many people say that this is the heartbeat of the letter. Many people will say that what we are looking at today is really the theme of Philippians. And I could see that because Paul has introduced it. He's brought up some themes and then now he's laying it all out there. And he's built on something else. He's built on his goal. And his goal in verse 10 is, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's Paul's goal. He wants to be like Christ. He wants to know Christ and be transformed by Christ. So this is what we're learning about Paul. And actually, what I like about this passage is it sets up for next week. So just like you would have in a movie or a TV show, there's a teaser for you. He tells Eutyche and Syntyche, Eudia and Syntyche, that they need to get along. There's conflict in the church. And so he sets it up. He's had a step here. And this is step one before you have him commanding. He calls these two ladies out in front of the whole congregation and all of Christendom. Imagine being, being that embarrassed. Right, being called out, and it will be in writing forever. So anyways, just thought that was interesting. So unity is a major theme, and so is maturity. So how do we have 
unity in the church and maturity in the church. Now, when we think about the church, we can think of the church in two ways, can't we? We can think of the church as the big church that is all Christians from all time. That's the church at large, right? Or the church, the big church. Or you have the church local, a local body of believers. Now, I want you to think about Paul. He's writing to a body of believers with the understanding that everyone else is going to hear about this too. So how do we as Christians in a church, a local manifestation of the body, how do we act with unity and maturity? Well, it's first off by having the same aim. Second, by imitating the right people. And third, by resolving to stand for the truth. Paul calls the church to become more mature, to become mature Christians who are unified in aim, in imitation, and resolve. If you belong to the church, if you are a Christian, you belong to the big church, you as well should have this unified aim. This should be your aim. Mature Christians are unified in aim. Look at verse 15. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. We are unified in aim when we think like Paul. And what does it mean to think like Paul? Well, we just got done talking about it, didn't we? Verse 10, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. I want to associate with that dead guy. That's what Paul is saying. I want to be like him and experience the resurrection. I want to be like that guy. Mature Christians must think like this. Now, it's understandable that someone who just came to faith or maybe is really weak in the faith may not have this mentality. But you shouldn't remain that way forever. What would you do with a child who never matures? What would you think? Let's just say that it stays a baby for a while. There's something wrong with this child, right? Everything grows. If your faith has been stagnant for the last 20 years, what is wrong with you? That's the question you should ask yourself. What is wrong? Am I not going to a church that preaches the gospel? Am I not uh, studying the Bible on my own? Am I not connected to the vine? If I had a plant that was not growing, I would have to look and see what is wrong with this plant. And most often it's not connected to any nourishment. So how are we connected to the nourishment that we have here? Remember how Paul says that we get to this one goal? It's by forgetting what lies in the back, in the past, and pursuing what is good in the future. We forget what lies behind and we pursue forward. And this is not just some of you. He didn't, Paul didn't just say, hey, some of y'all. That's the Texas way for saying all y'all. Some of you should think this way. He didn't say that. He said all of you should think this way. Look how it says in and all of us. All Christians should have this mindset. This is what Paul is pointing at. I don't know if anyone has ever told you this, but you should have this one goal. is to know Christ and Him crucified. That should be your goal in life. There should be no other overarching purpose that guides your life. When you wake up in the morning, your goal should be, how can I know Christ more today? That should be it. 
in your suffering, in your circumstances, how does this teach me to know Christ? Many of you have experienced great suffering in your life. Many of you have relational difficulties in your life. Many of you have struggled with massive anxiety and depression. The question you need to ask in those moments is how does this help me know Christ more? This is not the solution. You're not praying for seven steps to a happy life or your best life now. You're praying for how can I be more like Christ? Because therein is the power. How many of you have had to work on a team of some kind? How many of you are in school or have been in school? I guess we all have been in school. How many of you have had a group project? Do you guys love group projects? How many people hate group projects? We just go by a show of hands. Right? Group projects are no fun, are they? Because someone's not pulling their weight. Someone is goofing off. And then everybody has a different direction they want to go. And the group project makes it very difficult. But if you're on a sports team, what is the goal? What is your goal in a sports team? It's to win. Right? Now, I'm not a big fan of Tom Brady anymore because he left my favorite team. But he took a team that was kind of disjointed, worked with them for a year, and won a Super Bowl. That is impressive. I don't know who you are. I don't care who you are. That's impressive. And he's old, too, in a nice way. right? And he's smart. But what, has he did? He, what did he do? He aligned their aims. He said, this is the goal. He said, we have one task, and that is to win this game. But not everyone agrees on how to win. Some think you should use this tactic. Some think we should use that tactic. In fact, in the church, unified doesn't mean that we agree on everything. Can you imagine if we all agreed on everything in this church? That would be wild. We would be a bunch of drones. We would all be marching in lockstep. We'd be robots. But we have disagreements. But this is where maturity comes in. Is this going to accomplish the goal is what we need to be thinking. What is my one aim? We are called to make disciples. We are to be disciples who make disciples. That is the goal. That's what Paul is saying. My goal is to know him. That's what discipling is. That's what becoming a disciple is. You are learning about Christ. You are adjusting yourself to the conformity of Christ and his death, to obedience to the word. We are called to replicate and, as, and grow individually and as a group. It looks different in how we do this. Everyone grows differently. I don't treat a palm tree the same way that I treat a cactus. I'm not going to water a cactus in the same way that I water a palm tree. We all grow in varying ways. But we have one goal, and that is growth in discipleship. In fact, we even have instructions, don't we, on how to grow. The instructions are quite clear, but there's room for variance. There are some people who believe that we should have hip music and all walk around in um, shorty shorts. I don't know. I'm just making stuff up now. And other people who think we should wear a suit and a tie. The goal is the same, though growth in Christ. Are you willing to sit next to someone who has a different idea of how to make the same task happen? 
Are you willing to be in this group project that is a little bit more uncomfortable than we would like? Can you have a disagreement in a mature way? In fact, it's kind of like marriage. My wife and I do not always agree. Imagine that. But we have the same goal. We want to grow in holiness together. That is our goal. We are walking towards the celestial city on a journey. And her vision of what that looks like may be slightly different than my vision of what that looks like. The goal is for us to work together to accomplish it, even if we disagree on some of the particulars. And that's what a mature Christian can do. We evaluate ourselves and each other to see if we are true, mature Christians. And we saw Paul gave a whole lot of letters to what it means to be in the faith, genuine or fake. He was very clear that just showing up to church in your Sunday best does not make you a Christian. And we, we talked about that. I want to propose something to you, and I want you to mull over this. This is something I've been thinking about for a while. I propose that we rarely see maturity in someone until we see them in action. We learn about someone's spiritual maturity only when they don't get their way. That's my proposal. We don't really know. You could say you're the maturest Christian that has ever walked the earth. But when something bad happens in your life, how do you respond? That's the test of maturity. When things don't go my way. Or in the church, well, I don't understand why the pastor has to wear a tie. The ties are outdated and they're goofy. Why is he wearing such a, a lousy thing? I'm out of this joint. That's, that's not unifying. You're not having the same goal. Or maybe it's, I don't know why the pastor is wearing jeans and a t-shirt today. What's wrong with that guy? I'm, I can't worship the Lord like this. I'm out. Right? This is not mature Christianity. Mature Christians can put up with things that they disagree with. As long as... The goal is the same. So let's not get this twisted. The minute I walk up here and start denying the Trinity, or I start talking about some heretical things, y'all need to, to fire me. You need to get the elders, and we need to have a meeting, because something has gone wrong. But what I am saying is, we don't need to let these other side things just, you know, detract from the one goal. Maturity. We are unified in aim when we walk together. He says this. He says in 15, And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In every case, or in any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained, or you have also attained. I like how the, uh, the LSB says it. He says, however, let us keep walking in step with the same standard to which you have attained. That makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it? Let us keep walking in step. Now, we military folks or people near a military base know what it means to walk in step, don't we? We've, uh, we've heard a few cadences in our lifetime. We've seen soldiers marching in step. What does it take to take a, a, a civilian, place them into some training, and get them to walk in step? Now, as you can tell, I'm very short. My step is a lot different than Terry's step. 
If him and I were to march together, I would have to extend out my legs, my short little stubby legs, a little bit further. He would have to bring his step in just a tad in order for us to march together. That's the concept that we're, we're talking about here. You may be the most mature Christian. You may have it all figured out. You may know exactly what the Christian life looks like. In fact, you may be an expert on everything Christian. You may be the most Christ-like person since Jesus Christ. That may be you. Likely you have a pride issue, but let's, let's just pretend. That may be you. And then you maybe have someone who is brand new in the faith who says goofy stuff on Facebook. And you're like, that's not Christian, friend. I don't know what's wrong with you. What are you doing? You're outpacing that person. You need to bring that person into your formation, and you need to get them in line with the cadence and march together. That's what this looks like. That's what maturity and unification in the church looks like. We live to the truth God has given you. Now, we don't violate our conscience. That doesn't mean that you join the immature Christian by posting goofy stuff on Facebook or you treat other people poorly, but you bring them up to the standard that you have already attained. You set your mind on things above, Colossians says. You march to the same tune. You ever watch military processions, parades, and they all have a tune that they're marching to? Have you ever heard the tunes get mixed up or seen them get mixed up? And so you have one cadence caller several formations back that's really loud. And then you have some really quiet cadence caller up in the front. The ones in the, that are marching might hear that one and start walking at a different step. And what happens to the whole formation? You start stepping on each other's heels, don't you? It's pretty goofy looking. And what happens is you're marching to a different tune. And that's what happens in the church. When the church becomes divided, you have started listening to different tunes. There's a different cadence caller calling the shots. There's a different coach telling you what to do. And when you do that, you break the unity of a church. While being unified in aim, we also have to think rightly about the gospel and live it out together. Mature Christians also imitate gospel-centered people. Look at verse 17. Join in imitating me. He says, copy me. Follow my actions. Brothers and sisters, pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. That takes a lot of boldness to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Bad company corrupts morals. You ever heard that saying before? You become like who you imitate. My children, for good or for bad, imitate me. Your children, for good or for bad, imitate you. And they become like you. They become little miniature yous. And that may be scary, or that may be good, but it does reflect something. How are you living is played out in your kids' actions. Paul had warned the church earlier about these evildoers, these dogs, these mutilators. He says, beware. He says, be careful. Same kind of language that we're seeing here. And in fact, he even compares them or describes them as non-Christians. He says, these are enemies of the cross in verse 18. I have often told you and now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross. Who are you imitating? And then as Paul is talking about this, 
He's using real active language. Be imitating me. Make your purpose to imitate me as I imitate Christ. He points to Timothy and Epaphroditus, and then he points back to Christ. Ultimately, these men are imitating Christ, and Paul is imitating Christ. But it helps to have someone here on this planet, on this earth, that you can flesh and bone, that you can imitate. But it involves what? Discernment. Be careful. Be careful who you imitate. Be careful. Paul is, definitely thinks this is important to put in a letter, doesn't he? What example is he talking about? Be careful to imitate someone who is a slave to Christ Jesus. That's who you should imitate, not someone else. He's saying spiritual mentors are necessary in your faith. You must have someone who is a mentor for you, just as you would in sports or in any other activity on the earth. You need a mentor. You need someone that can walk before you, having walked the journey, that can give you guidance. There are many people out there that do not live as Christians. So we must imitate one and not or avoid the bad examples. He says they live as enemies of the cross. In fact, Paul is broken down about this. He is crying over this letter. This is a tear-stained letter about the lostness of people who live as enemies of the cross. Paul is sad because he's warned them, he's worked with them, he's made efforts with them, yet they remain deceptive and rebellious. He's worked with these folks for a while, but Paul is not afraid to cry over those that are perishing. Look at verse 19. This is the result of actively living as an enemy of the cross. Their end is destruction. They are going to be destroyed. This sounds a lot like the Proverbs, doesn't it? The Proverbs gives you two options, life or death, the way of the wise or the way of the fool. Over and over again, we see that in Proverbs, how to live a holy life. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. Their desires rule them. You ever heard someone say something like, oh, I just follow my heart? Or I wear my heart on my sleeve and I just follow it wherever it leads. That was kind of poetic. I, didn't, I just made that up. Um, what, what are they saying? What are they really getting at? They're getting at, they just follow their feelings. They follow, if they have a feeling, they follow it. What if we all live like that? Some days I don't want to come to church. What good would that do to you guys? You wouldn't be edified. Some days you may not want to love your neighbor. You have to take captive these thoughts and these feelings and live not according to your appetite. He's not talking about food here, but he is making a reference. But he is saying their God is their appetite. They've made their feelings a God. So just because you feel uncomfortable does not mean it's true. Just because you're depressed does not mean it's true. Just because you have all the what-ifs in your brain does not mean it is true. Those are all false prophets. And what do we do with false prophets? We stone them in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we avoid them. We, we shun them. 
Their glory is their shame. What they were proud about is really an embarrassment. The Jews at this time were trying to force the Jewish Christians to, uh, to adhere, or the Gentile Christians, to adhere to the Jewish law. And he says they're really proud about their background, but it's really an embarrassment. It's really shame. And he says their focus is on earthly stuff. And we already know what Paul thinks about the earthly achievements that he had. He called it dung, garbage. It's that garbage that's outside the city, the nasty. That's the result of living as a bad example. So when you are looking for a mentor, perhaps consider what they are living for. Do they, always, do they seem spiritual on the outside? And then when they don't get their way, do they turn on you and bite you a little bit? That may not be the best mentor for you. Imitation also involves knowing your identity and your motive. Look at verse 20. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you are in Philippi, you are a Philippian, you would hear this word citizenship and kind of boost up a little bit. Fourth of July is coming around. We all get real patriotic on the Fourth of July, don't we? We all like to wear American flag type stuff. And I get real crazy on Fourth of July. I just want you to know I get real patriotic. Okay, just fair warning at my house. But let's think about this. Philip, the Philippians, they are Roman soldiers. They won a battle and Caesar gave them citizenship. He said, you are now Roman citizens. This is a Roman colony. You don't have to pay certain taxes. You don't have to suffer consequences that Romans would not have. You don't have certain punishments. Certain jail time is not going to happen to you. You will not be martyred by crucifixion unless you become a traitor. There are certain things that you have special privileges. And as a citizen, where do you look for your marching orders? Where do you look to move forward? For them, it's Rome, correct? So whenever an edict comes from Rome, they read it very carefully and they follow it. Just like we should be, I don't know if we do, if we get an edict from Washington, D.C., we would look at it and we would consider whether that's in our best interest or not. No, we would look at it and we would try to follow it to the best of our abilities, right? We obey what the headquarters says. And so when he says citizens, Philippians are proud of their Roman citizenship. And of course, they took their marching orders from Rome in all aspects of life. And Paul is saying, that's not who you are. That may be who you are as a pilgrim on this earth. You may be Americans or U.S. citizens with all the privileges that come from having that blue passport. Those of you who have traveled overseas knows the, the value of having an American passport. You may be that, but something greater is who you are. You are citizens of heaven. That's who you belong to. That's who gives you the marching orders. You take aim in your thinking. You act in obedience by imitation. And then you become resolved to stand firm. 21 says, He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. Paul is pointing back to this resurrection power that we saw in chapter 2. He's pointing out that our transformation and likeness are being transformed. Now, what's really interesting about this is 
certain words that are used here in this passage are also used in chapter 2 of that Christ hymn. I don't have time to go into the details, but remember how I talked about schema and morphe, the two different types of, of change that happens. There's an outward change, like when I get older, and an inward change about when my very being is transformed. The difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly. Those are some of the things we talked about. He says, God in the person of Jesus Christ came in the likeness of man so that through his death our bodies could be made into the likeness of him on that last day by the resurrection power of Christ. That should lead us to be resolved to live a certain way because of who we belong to. We belong to the conquering king. We belong to Jesus, and that is where our citizenship is. That is what's most important. We are resolved because of who we belong to. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. So then, my dearly loved and longed-for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown. He said that they are longed for. He's revealing his heart again. Paul is pointing to the fact that he loves the Philippians. He loves them. They're the first church that he started in the Greco area, the Greek in Europe. He's, it's the first church that he started, and he loves them dearly, like brothers and sisters. And in fact, he's, he has joy when he thinks about them. And finally, he calls them his crown. Now, when we think about a crown, what do you think about when you think about a crown? Anybody? Anybody want to talk to me? King, king crowns, right? With the big fluffy stuff around the bottom and all the gems and only a certain person gets to wear it when they're a royalty. This is not what he's talking about. He's talking about a victor's crown. He's talking about like Caesar would wear the, uh, the olive branch around his head. I think it's olive branch. The leaves would be around his head. And it was for all the people who won a race or won in the Olympics. So in our Olympic games, they give them a little gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal, right? That's what he's talking about. He said, you guys are my medal. You are the reward. You. Imagine that. What does it take for you to be a reward for somebody? Interesting. Something to think about. And then he says, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. In this way, in the way I just described, by taking aim, thinking with the same way, in the same way, by imitating me and good examples, and then finally by standing firm, this is how you do the Christian life. This is how you are mature. This is how you are a unified and mature church. Don't let the dogs sneak in and destroy the church with their bad examples, their corrupt thinking and their wobbly stances on things. They are not bold in the faith. So we see that the pathway to maturity is found in unity to the precepts and promises of Christ. We are called as the church to become mature Christians who are unified in aim, in imitation, and resolve. What does a mature and unified church look like? It's not perfect. I can tell you that right now. It's not a perfect church but it is one that has disciples who are growing and those disciples are discipling others. Say that five times fast. 
It is a growing and discipling church. Not necessarily in numbers, but in growth in maturity, growth in Christ-likeness. That means that it takes effort on your part, church. It's not complicated. You don't have to read a hundred books. You do not have to do much. But what you do have to do is reach out to a younger Christian. Find a younger Christian that you will not let go. If you see a mom who is struggling as a parent, and you have raised your kids and grandkids, and maybe even have great-grandkids, reach out to that mom and just plan to meet on a regular basis just to hear them cry about their life. And then show them the gospel. Show them the word. How does the Bible affect how you raise your kids? If you truly believe that this is sufficient for all of life, you may not know all the answers, but you can find them. As a mature Christian, you are learning how to feed yourself, and you want to feed these younger sisters in Christ. And then mature men. Find a younger man to mature. There are men in our congregation that don't know how to balance a checkbook. That's a practical thing that you can teach. There are men in our congregation who do not know how to read their Bibles. You could teach them that. So look for them and don't let them go because we're an awkward community, aren't we? We do not like to talk to other people. In fact, the young generation, all we want to do is text. We would rather you text me than call me. Set up meetings. Don't let them go. Make this a priority. And you may feel like you are not worthy to mentor someone, but I tell you right now, us younger guys are desperate for an older guy to come alongside and walk with us through these difficulties. Many of us in this community don't have our parents, grandparents around us because it's a transient community. There are men who come on post and live here for three years without a dad to reach out to. You could be that father figure. For a minute, I want to brag on my elders. My elders are a bunch of dads to me. I can reach out to them about everything and anything. They all each have unique knowledge. And I, I couldn't do this job as pastor without them guiding me and leading me. And this is what is so important about having a plurality of elders in your church. I don't want to go onto a whole new sermon. But these men are essentially dads and father figures to me. Because they, they correct me when I am sloppy or too enthusiastic. But on the same token, they would need me. Because I bring a certain perspective that they probably don't have. And you will bring younger people, bring a perspective to an older person that they need. I don't know how many older folks need the perspective of what it's like to deal with a toddler for several hours. They, have, they may have raised many toddlers on their own. When they look back, they think through rose-colored glasses a little bit. Oh, that wasn't so bad, because they've been 40, 50 years removed from that event. And then every day it's happening. So reach out. If you want to mature this church, if this church wants to mature, you need to take advantage of the opportunities that are out there. We have women's ministry meetings and deaconess meetings that you should seek to be a part of. You should seek to be a deaconess. You should seek to be part of the women in ministry because the young women need the older women, the older women need the young women. How many of you older ladies like to go downstairs and get the communion cups with your own strength? It's exhausting, but if you could get a young, young kid 
to run down there and grab it for you, that would be a plus. So teach them what it looks like to be a deaconess. Teach them. Maybe they're not ready to be deaconesses yet. Go talk to one young lady and say, young lady, let me walk you. Probably don't call them young lady. It's a little demeaning. But say, lady, would you want to be a deaconess? Let me tell you what we do. We're going to make some sacrifices. Men, same thing. We have a men's breakfast and bullets coming up for Father's Day. We're going to go shoot some guns. That's a great opportunity to get to know people. I just got a new gun, and I'm excited about using it. And so we're going to have opportunities for men to gather together and do man kind of stuff. Now, I know it's stereotypical. Men don't all like to shoot guns. I, I get it. But this is an opportunity for us to talk and begin to work on a men's ministry in our, in our church. These are all fun things for us to do, but there's a purpose. Getting out of your own comfort zone. I know we all have our own schedules. Get out of our own comfort zone and make time for another member of this church. That's how we can grow in maturity. The, young, the younger kids, the younger folks, I'm like 35, so I don't know why I'm saying younger kids. The younger people need that wisdom. We need it. And we may not recognize it sometimes. We may be selfish and self-centered. So let's make time for one another. Let's pursue the goal of becoming like Christ together. Can we commit to that today? Can you think of one person in our congregation that you can reach out to, whether they're younger or they're older? In fact, why don't we just make several layers? You want one above you and you want one below you, not in rank, but in maturity that you can continue to grow. Some of you who are very mature may have a hard time finding someone more mature, but let's just go ahead and pretend that we can find that. Think about these things, find someone, give them a phone call, send them a text message, and just say, I want to be there for you. I don't know what it looks like right now. I don't know if it means once a month meetings or we never meet, but I want to be that person. I don't know how many times in my life I've had a question, and because my dad died when I was 19 years old, I don't know who to turn to. Who do I ask about simple things like what tool do I use in this circumstance? How many of you men have felt that way in your lifetime? Maybe not from a dad, but maybe from someone else. Maybe a spiritual father. My wife and my marriage are, are, are crumbling. Who do I turn to when my marriage begins to fall apart? I don't understand this child. He just keeps pooping his pants, and he's a grown boy. What do I do? Who are you going to turn to? Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters, right? Who are you, you going to reach out to? That's the question I want you to ask. Who can you reach out to and who can you be reached out to by? That doesn't sound like good English, but let's go ahead and close with that in mind. Find someone this week. This week. Don't let it pass. Don't let the day go by because you will forget by the time lunch comes. Think about who you can reach out to and be that mentor to this week. Maybe even today. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that we can be your church. We thank you that you are merciful by providing us with a community. God, as I dwell upon and I think upon who you are, Christ reveals you as Father. God the Father. And that means that you are a family-oriented God. And we can think of you in these terms. You have revealed to us in Scripture that you are a father to us. Lord, as we consider 
what that means in our relationships. I pray that we would be a family. Father, what better compliment could we have than that Sierra Vista Baptist Church down the road? They are a family. They care for one another when things go bad. They laugh with one another when things are good. They mentor one another, even if it's just for a short time through a transitional period on post. Father, I pray that people who will come through this community, even if it's just for a year or two or even a few months, can look back at their time with Sierra Vista Baptist Church, this community, and think, that was a family. They are, they are still my family even with, when I'm somewhere else. God, I pray for that for our community. Lord, help us to be a family. And a family that's not dysfunctional, that we don't want to visit on Thanksgiving, but the kind of family where we grow in Christ-likeness, that we become unified and we become more mature in you. Lord, I pray that we become like Christ. Thank you for your son. It's in Jesus' name that we pray through the power of the Spirit. Amen.